This is Nick Dodge with your local news coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. The state Supreme Court ruled Friday to adopt new legislative maps for Wisconsin that were drawn by the Republican-led state legislature, reports the Capital Times. The ruling came on the first day that candidates were allowed to begin collecting signatures to gain access to the ballot for the 2022 fall election. Signatures and candidate registration for that election are due on June 1st. This late Friday ruling meant that some candidates whose district boundaries are disputed between different maps had to collect signatures, unsure of which district they would actually be running for. State Attorney General Josh Call called the ruling a, quote, travesty for democracy, while Governor Tony Evers called the ruling outrageous. This puts an end to the long process of deciding the state's legislative maps for the next decade. Former Wisconsin Governor Tommy Thompson has decided against running for governor, despite encouragement by former President Donald Trump. Thompson has not ran for office since his loss against Tammy Baldwin for U.S. Senate in 2012. This race would have been his fifth time running for governor after serving from 1987 until 2001. Businessman Eric Hovde has also decided not to run in the race for the Republican challenger. Instead, Hovde considers running for U.S. Senate in 2024 for the seat currently held by Democrat Tammy Baldwin. Hovde and Thompson have opted out of a crowded Republican race, which includes former Lieutenant Governor Rebecca Kleefish. The winner of the August Republican primary will then face Tony Evers in November. Wisconsin Treasurer Sarah Galuski has proposed a federal ban on the use of PFAS as part of her policy proposal for safer water in Wisconsin. Galuski's push for safer water emerged as part of her candidacy for U.S. Senate. Her plan includes working with farms to prevent runoff and address levels of nitrates in the state's groundwater. Galuski plans to hear out voters' water-related concerns in Marinette, Superior, and the La Crosse area. Madison City Council President Syed Abbas announced last week that he will be running for a seat in the State Assembly. The Wisconsin State Journal reports that he originally announced he would run for the 37th District of the State Assembly, but after the Supreme Court officially adopted new legislative maps Friday, he announced this morning that he will now be running in the 46th District. That seat, which contains Sun Prairie, Cottage Grove, and parts of Madison's east side, was held by Representative Gary Hebel, who announced his retirement last week. Abbas has, said on, has sat on the Common Council since 2019, and his term is set to end in April of next year. The Madison Metro School District has announced that they will extend their indoor mask mandate until at least the first week of May. The Capital Times reports that the district saw over 100 confirmed COVID cases during the week of April 4th, the most recent data available from the district. District officials say that the decision to extend the mask mandate came from their desire to keep schools open for in-person instruction and give them more time to access the current surge or to assess the current surge of cases in the community. And now on to today's top stories. Madison's Well 15 has been shut down since 2019 due to PFAS contamination. Now, the well could be coming back online after city leaders say they have a plan to treat PFAS at the well. WORT producer Nate Wegehout has the story. 
Well 15 has been shut down since 2019 after voluntary testing found levels of PFAS chemicals at around 20 parts per trillion, right at the safety standards set by the state health department. Well 15 sits near Truax Airfield, where a process to clean up PFAS chemicals is ongoing. According to a 2021 report from the Madison Water Utility, PFAS chemicals have also been detected at much lower levels in 14 other wells across Madison. Madison. Now, Madison's mayor and an area alder have a plan to treat toxic chemicals at Well 15 on Madison's east side. We're introducing a resolution to contract with a firm that will help us design a treatment system to remove from the resolution, which will be introduced at tomorrow night's council meeting, would help the Madison Water Utility get a design to treat the water. The goal is to get the plan in place in time to apply for federal infrastructure funds later this year. The new resolution would create an amendment to the city's water utility capital budget to hire an engineering firm to perform testing on the well, as well as to create a final design for the well's treatment facility. May Rhodes Conway says that the resolution is intended to fix the problem one way or another. Well, so we don't know what the solution is, and that's important to note here. The resolution is focused on hiring a firm that can help us find the right solution. It might be filtration. It might be something different. We don't know. And um, so that's, you know, the, the point is to investigate our options and to design a solution. The treatment facility would be designed by AECOM, an environmental engineering consultant. In 2009, the company worked with the city of Madison to build the city's first iron and manganese treatment plant. Under the resolution, the city would pay $375,000 to AECOM to design and plan construction for the treatment plant. Additionally, the city would spend an added $50,000 to pay for city staff time with the project. This funding would begin to pave the way for the city to apply for federal funds under the federal infrastructure bill that was passed last fall. That funding could fully fund the construction of the treatment plant. The city has to move quickly, however. The deadline for applications to get the federal funds is in just six months. And with so many municipalities working for the same funding, it's not guaranteed Madison will get the money. But by approving this resolution, the city's water utility says Madison has a better chance of getting the money. The State Department of Natural Resources, who will have control of the funds, are expected to make their decision on which projects will receive funding in April of next year. The city has been waiting for the State Department of Natural Resources to set acceptable limits for PFAS in drinking water. After the state agency did not set that limit last month and reset the process, Mayor Rhodes-Conway says that there isn't time to wait around on Well 15. We're just moving forward because we know that we need to be ready to apply for the federal funds. I think that, to me, that looks like it's going to take a good long time um, for them to settle on something. And, you know, we just need to be able to move forward here. And so we're going to do the best that we can to set up a system and to um, hopefully be in a position to remediate to whatever level the, either the state of Wisconsin or the federal government comes up with. We really do just need to move forward so that we can you know, be treating that well and be able to open it back up and provide you know, clean drinking water to our community. 
The resolution will be proposed at tomorrow night's Common Council meeting. Oral will then be sent to the City Finance Committee and the Water Utility Board. If all goes according to plan, it will then go before the full council for a final vote on May 10th. If it passes there, the project is scheduled to begin construction in the spring of 2024. According to the city, it would likely be the first municipal PFAS treatment facility in the state. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggie-Hout. It's now 6.15 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Once again, Madison Alders are slated to take up the issue of body-worn cameras at their meeting tomorrow, where they'll decide whether or not to embark on a pilot program for the devices. Whether or not to outfit Madison police officers with body cams and spend the money to do so has been a long-simmering debate in Madison. For more, Madison Police Chief Sean Barnes joined News Director Sholly Pittman on the phone earlier today. They started off by talking about the current state of body-worn cameras in the MPD. So we should say Madison police officers generally do not wear body cameras, although I believe members of the SWAT team do, correct? Absolutely. Members of our SWAT team wear body-worn cameras and our motorcycle officers wear body-worn cameras because we haven't figured out how to get a dash cam on the motorcycle, but our officers do wear uh, body-worn cameras on the motorcycle, and we do have dash cameras. We have had them for some time now. So the technology or concept really is not new to our department, but the full implementation uh, would be certainly new to our department and our city. There is a lot to think about when implementing body cameras, and we've certainly gone around and around at the city. There's a lot to figure out on the policy side of things. How long do you retain the footage? How long do you store it? Um, Have you been having those sorts of discussions at the MPD? I certainly have, and you're right. There is a lot uh, to discuss, but you know, it's not uh, what you don't know that gets you in trouble. It's what you know for sure that isn't so that gets you in trouble. And so as we think about this policies and how it's going to affect us, this is the time to do a 90-day random control trial pilot study so that we can determine what policies best suit uh, Madison, what policies or retention um, services best suit Madison. Now, you know, we have uh, state laws that uh, govern some of those things, and I don't know for sure if uh, the feasibility committee considered some of those. I think some of the recommendations were best practices or even in a perfect world, we could release video within five days. But there are laws that we have to adhere to. And so that's my first concern is making sure that we adhere to those laws. But when where we can be transparent, we want to make sure that we're doing that. 
Yeah. So tell me about your general perspective towards this and, and how you're hoping the council votes tomorrow. Yeah, my general perspective is that it's step by step. Um, the president's 21st century report on policing basically stated that for implementation of body-worn cameras, best practice would be to conduct some type of experimentation or pilot to determine how this policy or this particular piece of technology will work for your city. And that's what I want to do. So my expectations is that if there's unanswered questions to me, that just says we need to move forward with this 90-day pilot study. Again, we're not asking. We're not asking for full implementation. And so if you read the feasibility study or the feasibility report, it reads as if if you're going to go to full implementation, you should do these 10 things. But it's important to note that that's not where we are now. Um, I would hope that at the end of our experimentation, the researcher would come back and say, you know, we don't need body-worn cameras in Madison because there's a high level of trust. We don't need body-worn cameras in Madison because there's a high level of transparency. People feel safe. And this is a tool that probably may not be a good fit for Madison because of all the good work that these police officers do on a daily basis. That's my hope, and that should be the hope of everyone. But you will not know until we include ourselves in a long line, a long list of people who said, hey, let's do some experimentation and let's find out. There are some uh, proposed kind of downsides to body-worn cameras. Critics say they are too expensive and come at the expense of possibly more effective interventions. We should also note that the MPD comprises a large portion of the budget. Critics also point out that there can be unintended consequences like Privacy concerns could actually criminalize uh, minor crimes or be abused by federal immigration authorities. What's your response, and have you thought through some of these criticisms? Certainly I have, and and you've listed quite a few, and I can't remember them all in the order, but I'm going to give it a shot. Um, When it comes to immigration, uh, we don't use body-worn cameras or any other type of tool to cooperate with immigration in order to put people uh, under the custody of, of, of ICE. That's not what we do. And we haven't done that uh, for some time. In regards to the money, we do not know how much body-worn cameras will cost because we haven't embarked on that particular part of the study. That would be a part of the um, actual pilot study. And that's not just the equipment. That's also the additional staff that may be needed, the additional time. But we can measure that during the 90-day pilot experimentation. There are people who say that the money could be best spent somewhere else on something that would have a greater efficacy. Well, you don't know that. You don't know if it will have a greater impact. You can only assume that. And it's also important to note that cameras are just one piece of a puzzle. And that puzzle includes everything from technology to transparency to communication to community engagement, to foot patrols, all of these things work together to create a puzzle. And that puzzle that we're all trying to put together is community trust. But I will tell you, when you have um, people who do not want the police to get better, who do not want community trust, there's no tool that's going to fix that. And so I don't assume that cameras are a panacea for people who will say nothing never changes. We'd rather use our money somewhere else. I can't communicate... Um, enough uh, with uh, that sentiment in order to please those persons. I can only say that it's my job and my responsibility to come to work every day uh, with a cheerful heart, knowing that the men and women 
uh, that work with me go out every day, put their lives on the line in order to make sure that our community not only is safe, but also feels safe as well. Yeah. Well, I want to talk about your experience just a little bit. Um, so you've been chief for a little bit longer than a, a year at this point. And so these conversations have been long ongoing in Madison. I wanted to ask, though, if your previous you know, city police forces had body cameras, what your experience was there, um, or if the Civilian Office of Police Accountability in Chicago, where you previously worked, if they dealt with this at all. Well, what kind of experience are you bringing with you um, into this debate? Absolutely. So Greensboro, uh, back in 2012, this is before Mike, uh, Mike Brown incident in Ferguson, um, embarked on body-worn cameras, and I was a part uh, of that committee. Uh, Greensboro is highly recognized as one of the first police departments in the entire country uh, to give officers who work patrol body-worn cameras. And so back then, the body-worn cameras were attached to a pair of Oakley sunglasses that you put on your face, because the idea was that as the officer turns his or her head, that's what you would see. But it doesn't account for things that may be coming uh, to the left or to the right of the officer. And so we were part of changing the culture and landscape. Back then, the cameras were, were purchased by a, a company that later changed their name. And so I have had the opportunity not only to help implement body-worn cameras in Greensboro, but I've also spoken at uh, state conferences with agencies who were looking to implement body-worn cameras. In Salisbury, we had body-worn cameras, but our issue was malfunction, and so we had to change vendors. So I was able to work through the bidding process and understanding what we could or could not afford, understanding storage of the body-worn cameras, and making sure that we had a camera not only that would not malfunction, but that would capture that 30 seconds of buffering that we need if the officer sees something before he or she gets an opportunity to activate their camera. And in Chicago, the Civilian Office of Police Accountability, their job is, cannot be done without looking at body-worn camera footage. We now have a, uh, a police accountability here or a civilian oversight board. I know they're still uh, trying to get up and running with hiring a monitor. There will be no way that this civilian oversight board here in Madison can successfully do their job to the expectations of the community without body-worn cameras. And I know many of, of the members have publicly stated they don't agree with body-worn cameras, but how will the independent monitor, who is yet to be hired, adjudicate a case when there's no independent evidence? I think if there's a way to show independent evidence in the light of one person's word against the other, we owe it to our community to do that. And certainly in the incidence of a critical incident, if there is footage, it will only help and aid that. It cuts down time. It'll cut down time for our professional standards uh, division. It'll cut down time uh, with our training. And so it's not just about holding police accountable. It's about holding everyone accountable. And it's also a great tool for training for an officer who may be struggling or doing something extremely well. We can use that as an example for other people. So there's multiple uses to body-worn cameras. So when people talk about trust and accountability and money, they're missing the total picture. The cameras can be used for much more than simply showing what happens in a critical incident. 
Thank you for that background. Your perspective has been to bring more transparency uh, to the department, and I have one question about that. Um, There have been these community conversations ongoing about the use of body cameras, and a few months ago, the MPD hosted several community discussions on these cameras, including one at Memorial Union. What was not disclosed to the public was the fact that the event was hosted and paid for by Axon, a body camera company. One could argue that company has a conflict of interest in um, funding these discussions. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I don't think they funded. I wouldn't say that they totally funded. I certainly wouldn't say that they hosted. Um, obviously, they um, one of the uh, persons who was involved in the meeting actually went to UW. Um, and she wanted to have it at her alma mater because she loves UW. Who don't? Who doesn't? Um, and so, you know, that was totally out of my control. You know, if I could, if I had to go over and do it all over again, uh, given everything I know now, I probably would not have, have done it that way. But I don't think that takes away from the fact that uh, they were there to talk about community impact. It wasn't a sales pitch because there's no one there that's going to write them a check and they don't sell to individuals. Um, And so I don't think that takes away from the spirit of what we were trying to do at all. One thing we did do is that we had a robust conversation with people on both sides of it. And again, we purchased all types of equipment uh, in the course of being a police agency. Um, We go to Ford when we need cars. That doesn't mean that Ford is going to tell us something that is untrue because we go to Ford and they give us cars. Uh, we, we have tasers that we use. Um, Axon makes the taser, so we're already in business with them. Uh, Panasonic makes the body-worn cameras and, and dash cameras that we use now. So having a conversation with them, whether they are um, paying for the space or not, doesn't take away from the subject matter that we're here to discuss. I've been on the line with Madison Police Chief Sean Barnes. Chief Barnes, thanks for your time. Thank you, Shelley. And that city council meeting begins tomorrow at 6.30 p.m., Among the many agenda items is whether to implement a body-worn camera pilot program in the Madison Police Department. You can find the agenda and more information online at madison.legistar.com. You are listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT. Stay with us. We've got a lot more stories for you coming up in the second half of the show. Forward Lookout looks at tomorrow night's busy Common Council meeting. Bridging the Gap takes a trip back in time to look at how we watch movies at home. And two new movie reviews. But now we'll take a quick break, and then we'll check in on some world headlines. Back in a flash. Time is now 6.33 and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Nick Dodge. Thanks for joining me. On this week's Forward Lookout, Dylan Brogan and Brenda Conkle look at new county board members, election security, a busy city council meeting, and all the other meetings happening around Madison and Dane County this week. It is Monday. That means we're speaking with Brenda Conkle from ForwardLookout.com about what's happening this week in local government. We'll start with Dane County. The tree board 
virtual meeting. Uh, that's happening Tuesday, 345. Always exciting. Um, they will be talking about a um, bunch of organizational things. They'll be reviewing their, pro their budget and the projects that they'll be spending money on. Um, they are going to be talking about if they should go back to in-person meetings. They also will be talking about the Dane County Oak Project. So they are doing an inventory there. And then they're getting a presentation from Adam Elves. And then uh, it's also Tuesday. Usually the county board doesn't meet on Tuesday, but it's a they're swearing in a whole bunch of new county board supervisors. So they're having a big organizational meeting. So does their term officially start tomorrow then? Um, yep, this is when they'll get sworn in and that's when they'll be officially in office. Um, and so they'll start out by taking their oath of office. And then the first thing that they do is they elect the board chair um, and also vice chair, second vice chair, sergeant at arms. Um, they'll also be talking about uh, their uh, board rules. Uh, will they? Will they or will they not be doing the Pledge of Allegiance this next year? And then they will be designating an official newspaper for the next uh, two years. And that's going to be it. That's the end of their agenda. Um, and then they will resume their regular Thursday meetings with the new county board. The Office for Equity and Inclusion Advisory Board, um, they're having a virtual meeting starting at noon one Wednesday. So a zoo survey in the works, which yep, after some news this weekend... Yeah, I wonder if that's been in the works for a while. It has been. Um, there's been some some talk about various departments that they need to be doing some work with. So that that is one of the things. They'll also be talking about uh, the grants that they do, um, their equity plan reviews, and then also talking about um, some training that they're planning on. Okay, and then we have uh, 2 o'clock Wednesday, we have County Board Supervisors Security Review Committee. What's that? I've never yes, even heard. I've never. Oh, election security review committee. I've never heard of this. Security. I've never heard of this committee. Yeah, this is the first time that they're meeting. Um, and so they have a, a series of things that they have on their agenda. The first one says threats to clerks. Um, and so they will be reviewing some of the threats that have occurred. They're also going to be um, surveying municipal clerks on the security. Um, they have a, a pilot program that they're going to be looking at. Um, and the Homeland Security Review, which is currently underway, as well as a cybersecurity review with Homeland Security for County IT. 5.30, the Youth Commission. They'll be meeting at 5.30 virtually. Yep, they'll be talking about uh, funding decisions, and then they will also be um, talking about if they should remain in person or virtual. Let's move on to the City of Madison. Uh, happening right now, it's the Landmarks Commission. They're looking at a couple of properties they do. There's one at uh, Van Heist Avenue, the 2000 block, as well as the 1200 block of State Street. And then they're reviewing the National Register nomination for the Madison Saddlery Company, which is at 313 to 317 East Wilson Street. And then on Tuesday, um, we have no Common Council Executive mini, uh, meeting, but we do have uh, the full Common Council meeting at 630. That's on Tuesday. And this is um, a, a big organizational meeting for city alders, too, even though um, none of them were reelected last week. Yep. There should be a, a Common Council Executive Committee because several of the items on the agenda say there's going to be a referral oh. from their meeting, but there was no agenda. So mm. not sure how that's all going to work out. Um, they do for the Common Council meeting. They um, haven't been meeting a whole lot. So this is a very long agenda with lots of things on it. Um, but they will be um, thanking um, Alder Syed Abbas, the, the current president, and Arvina Martin, the, the vice president, for their service and then electing a new common council president and vice president. 
Um, and then they have a whole bunch of things on their agenda. Um, so you probably want to take a look at the blog, but a couple of the things that people might be most interested are in our, um, the Body Worn Camera pilot program is on there. Um, there's some bus rapid transit um, items that are on there. Um, lots of money and grants that are coming in for various things, the permanent men's shelter at Bartillon, as well as there's um, a fee for recycling and um, a whole bunch of things that were coming out of the um, TFOGS report. Um, so there's actually some action taken on some of the reorganizing or, or ways that they think that to get more people in, interested in local government. So um, there's a ton of things on the agenda, though, and you may want to check it out. Um, yeah, and the body-worn camera program, definitely going to get a lot of attention, too, that night. So um, that probably will be the, be the thing that Alders discuss the most, along with public testimony. Wednesday, um, we have the Street Use Staff Committee. Some more events being approved. Yep, We the People United We Stand, which will be happening on April 30th and May 1st. Um, that'll be happening around the square, Juneteenth Day celebration as well as Concerts on the Square and Summer Palooza. Okay, well, let's just finish up um, today, Brenda. We're a little short on time. Uh, Wednesday, 5.30, it's the Alcohol, the alcohol License Review Committee. Uh, that's happening 5.30 and virtually. So um, getting pretty close to that June date, uh, so they're probably starting to work through that um, stuff where every liquor license needs to be reapproved. Yeah, yep, they, yep, that's coming that time of year again. Um, they're also going to be looking at some uh, temporary licenses for Wolf's King Street Pride as well as Oktoberfest. Um, so that's uh, both on King Street. There also will be um, some chain, lots of uh, streetery requests from various uh, locations Tip Top, Grandfather's Pizzeria, or Grandpa's uh, Pizzeria, Bus's Tavern, and Mickey's Tavern. And then there's a whole bunch of new licenses, probably about uh, 12 of them or so. So you might want to take a look at those. All right, Brendan. And of course, you can always check out forwardlookout.com, which is conveniently placed all these important uh, agenda and uh, meeting times and agenda items. So you can um, check it out at your leisure. So thank you, Brenda, for walking it, th walking us through it today. You're welcome. This Wednesday, April 20th, marks the eight-year anniversary of the passing of Reuben Hurricane Carter. Carter, a boxer and supporter of self-defense for African Americans, was wrongfully convicted of a triple murder in the mid-60s. He won his freedom after 18 years in prison. Feature contributor Harry Richardson has the story. This Wednesday, April 20th, marks the death of Reuben Hurricane Carter in 2014. He was wrongfully convicted on a triple murder charge in Patterson, New Jersey in the early 70s and spent 19 years in prison before his conviction was overturned by a federal judge in 1985. Amnesty International described him as a prisoner of conscience whose human rights had been violated. Carter said he had been framed because he spoke out on civil rights and against police brutality. Carter's story would be unbelievable if it were not true. At 11, he stabbed a man who had indecently assaulted him and was put away for seven years. After getting out, Carter became a dynamic boxer and almost won the middleweight championship in 1964. He had been marching nonviolently with Martin Luther King Jr., 
but after the rebellions in Watts and Harlem in the early 60s left 13 children dead from police bullets, Carter became a black Muslim and started talking to the press about fighting back. One night in Patterson, two black gunmen entered a local bar and opened fire, killing three white customers. The gunman escaped in what some witnesses said was a white Chevy. Police pulled over Carter and a young friend, John Artis, in a white Dodge. Vincent de Simone, the police officer who had been involved in Carter's childhood arrest 18 years earlier, was on duty. De Simone found that no witnesses from the bar could identify Carter and Artis as the shooters. Also, descriptions by two professional burglars did not fit Carter and Artis. These burglars were white men picked up for robbing the bar during the shooting. Although Carter and Artis were released that night, they were still charged with the shooting several months later. That's because Officer de Simone had persuaded the white robbers to change their testimony in exchange for an early parole, a $12,000 reward, and no criminal charges for their robbery, even though one of the robbers had emptied the cash register while the bar's shooting victims lay dying. The police deals with the robbers were not disclosed to the defense. The prosecution called for the electric chair while initially suppressing eyewitness descriptions of the gunman that could have exonerated Carter and Artis. Both Carter and Artis got long prison sentences, but after serving 10 years, Carter quite literally wrote his way out of prison with a memoir, The Sixteenth Round, which revived interest in his case. New York Times reporter Selwyn Rabb found the robbers who confessed to perjury. The case became a cause celeb, and Bob Dylan wrote one of his best protest songs, The Hurricane, about the case. Muhammad Ali led protest marches, and an appeals court ordered a retrial. All this publicity infuriated New Jersey politicians, local judges, and the local police, especially De Simone, who was now police chief. In his second trial, prosecutors now framed the crime as a black power revenge killing. The state had 49 lawyers and investigators versus Carter's mostly free attorneys, including lead attorney Leonard Weinglass, a movement lawyer. Before the trial, 17 editorials and all 324 front-page articles in local papers were against Carter. Half the articles referred to him as a murderer, assassin, criminal, and killer of white people. The verdict, once again, was guilty. His release in 1985 was due to a dogged defense attorney, Myron Beldock, who found evidence of prosecutorial misconduct. The judge vacated the conviction on those misconduct grounds and the prosecutor's appeal to racism. Carter moved to Toronto and formed Innocence International and worked for the next 29 years to free the wrongfully imprisoned and to oppose the death penalty. The unsung hero here is John Artis, who at 19 had an exemplary record and a good career ahead of him. Instead, he spent 20 years in prison. He refused all offers for pleas, deals, and freedom that authorities offered Artis if he would implicate Carter. At one point, Artis was even threatened with the electric chair. While seriously ill, Carter had taken up the cause of David McCallum, who had falsely confessed to a crime at 16. Carter published an editorial in the New York Daily News saying his final wish was for a new look at McCallum's conviction. Carter ironically passed on Easter Sunday with his devoted friends, including John Artis, at his bedside. A few months after Carter's passing, McCallum was freed after serving 29 years. McCallum has pledged to continue Rubin's work. And that is our story for today. For the past is in the past, I'm Harry Richardson. And give him back the time.
It's now 6.46 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. This week on Bridging the Gap, feature contributor Teresa Yen takes a trip down memory lane and discusses how the home viewing experience evolved from VHS tapes to Netflix. Nowadays, you can view almost anything on the internet. Streaming services like Netflix have made the home watching experience more convenient than ever. When you want to watch a show, you can go on the internet, search for the show and see which platform it's streaming on and you'll have access to the show in just a few clicks. But watching TV didn't used to be like this. Back in the days, when we wanted to watch a TV show, we had to tune into the channel it was airing on at the time it was coming out. If you liked a show, you can purchase its VCR tapes and store them for your own collection. Owning a physical collection of your favorite movies or TV show was a memory that many in the earlier generations will always remember. This is Bridging the Gap, a weekly feature dedicated to exploring the connection and differences between generations. VCR tapes were first introduced in the 1970s and became an essential part of the video home system, also known as VHS. VHS completely transformed the home watching experience. Instead of having to tune into a show at a certain time, you can now record a show on VHS tapes and watch it back. Moreover, if you enjoyed watching a movie, you can now purchase or rent the physical copy of the movie and pop it into a VCR player and watch it on your own time. A YouTube channel called React, hosted by Fine Bros, had kids under the age of 10 react to old VCR machines. Most of the kids did not know what it was. So what do you think it is? CD player? A music player thing? I think it's a projection screen. Is this like a DVD player? VCR player. And it's really hard to like program the clock. Is it a radio? No. Alarm clock? No. I give up, just tell me. It's called a VCR. I have vague memories of a VCR player. I remember seeing a stack of tapes under our TV cabinet. I've seen my parents put the VCR tapes into the VCR player, press a couple of buttons on the remote, and a movie would start playing on the TV. But before long, we had bought a DVD player, which became the staple of my childhood. DVDs started replacing VCRs as the primary form of medium for entertainment. DVDs were able to hold more data, play videos of higher qualities, and took up much less space than VCRs. Moreover, The rise of Blu-ray discs also introduced high-quality film to at-home movie watchers, offering a cinema-level film experience to those who enjoyed the comfort of their own home. Some of my favorite memories as a kid was going to the DVD rental stores with my mom. The joy of picking out a DVD with an interesting name and funky cover, reading the synopsis, and deciding whether it's the one that I want to watch for the week because I only get one movie per week. As a 10-year-old in a DVD rental store, I was pretty much always only looking for the movies that had the best cover art, or movies that starred teen pop sensations like Miley Cyrus or Lindsay Lohan. The best part about watching the movies on DVD is that you get access to the bloopers and behind the scenes. I always feel like part of an exclusive VIP club because I got to see extra video clips on how the movie was made. And then came streaming. 
Netflix was one of the first platforms to introduce internet streaming services. By paying a monthly subscription fee, you get access to a large catalog of different movies and TV shows. You are able to watch any show on the platform on demand without any additional gear setup, which meant no more waiting for a designated time to gather in front of a TV to watch a show. No more having to get a DVD or VCR player to play a video. Moreover, you can even watch TV anywhere if you have your smartphone or laptop with you and an internet connection. Netflix is also famous for putting out an entire series of a show all at once, leading more people to binge TV shows. Binge-watching means watching an entire series of a show in one sitting because you no longer have to wait a week between episode releases. I got my first Netflix account after coming to college and was immediately hooked. As a college student on campus, I had access to the campus internet at all times and also brought my laptop anywhere. I got to watch some of my favorite TV shows in between classes at a study space or dining hall. While streaming has made viewing TV shows and movies more convenient, it may have also taken away some of the joys that older methods of viewing offered. Because we only need to pay a small fee to watch so many different shows, Fewer people purchased physical copies of their favorite shows as memorabilia. There was no longer the excitement of watching a recorded movie on VHS tape and storing it in your TV cabinet. The evolution of technology might come with more convenience, but it may also chip away at some of the sentimental elements of older methods. For Bridging the Gap and WORT News, I'm Teresa Yan. Today, feature contributor Harry Richardson reviews two new movies on the big screen. A pretty good prequel for the Harry Potter series, Fantastic Beasts, The Secrets of Dumbledore, and the wonderfully original sci-fi action comedy, Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. How will we fulfill our destinies? and transform the world. That was a clip from the trailer for Fantastic Beasts, The Secrets of Dumbledore, directed by David Yates. Yates has directed all three Fantastic Beasts so far, and the last several Harry Potters as well. The screenplay is by J.K. Rawlings and Stephen Clovis. The gentle soul and Fantastic Beasts lover and expert Newt, Eddie Redmayne, is back and is shy but determined as ever. But he's not the central character. As the title implies, that honor goes to Professor Dumbledore, Jude Law. Dumbledore has a lot on his plate. His main nemesis is back, Grindenwald, now played by Mads Mikkelsen. I'll take him any day over Johnny Depp. The movie has gotten mediocre reviews, but I think it was as enjoyable, if darker, than the first two. We're scheduled for two more. As our movie opens in what looks like 30s Berlin, an ominous setting if ever there was one, Dumbledore and Grindenwald meet for tea. Dumbledore makes one last attempt to dissuade his former friend from his dark path to take over the wizarding world and conquer and eliminate the Muggles. Perhaps I should back up and explain. The Fantastic Beasts is a prequel to the Harry Potter series. Dumbledore, in the later series, is the headmaster of Hogwarts, a school for young wizards. The term Fantastic Beasts refers to rare magical creatures and was first imagined as the title of a textbook at Hogwarts. Newt is the author of the book. The prequel is somewhat limited because the story can't take us too far down the road of confrontation between Dumbledore and Grindelwald. That has to come in the final Harry Potter movie and book. 
but this is a pretty good prequel. It is certainly beautifully filmed with a host of wonderful special effects and interesting magical animals. There is even a little humor here, mostly at the expense of Muggle Jacob Kowalski, again played, well, by Dan Fogler. Old Muggles are non-magical people who live in a sort of parallel earth where they mostly have no clue that magic works and that there is a whole wizarding world out there. Kowalski is a sort of good everyman in over his head, but courageous in game anyway. All in all, a pretty fun film. See it on the big screen if you can do so safely. Now for a woman-centered movie. There is no way I am the Evelyn you are looking for. Every rejection, every disappointment has led you here to this moment. That was a clip from the trailer for Everything, Everywhere, All at Once, written, directed, and produced by Dan Kwan and Daniel Scheinert. The Daniels, as they're known, did the weird and hysterical Swiss Army Man in 2016 that starred Daniel Ratcliffe as a farting corpse. Yes, you heard that right. It's one of the most unique and funny films I've ever seen. This movie about the multiverse stars the great Michelle Yeoh as a Chinese immigrant woman on the edge, Evelyn Wang. She is desperately trying to hold it together with a looming tax audit, her failing laundromat business, and her dysfunctional multi-generational family. And that is before she's contacted by a cooler version of her spouse, Waymond, an outstanding Kihi Kwan. The cool Waymond doesn't need glasses, but does need Evelyn to help preserve the multiverse. The multiverse, for the uninitiated, is a theory that there are multiple universes existing alongside each other with infinite varieties of ourselves. Evelyn is skeptical, but eventually persuaded by jumping with the aid of cool Wayman's tech to various versions of herself. The start of this jumping around is occurring in front of a threatening IRS agent played in a fat suit and a gray bob in a fun over-the-top role by Jamie Lee Curtis. Back at home, they have an apartment above the laundromat Things, if anything, get worse as Evelyn prepares for a New Year's celebration her dad is attending. He is called Gong Gong for grandfather in Chinese. He's played by veteran actor James Hong. Evelyn's daughter Joy, Stephanie Shu, arrives with her girlfriend and nervously tries to come out to her Gong Gong. But she fumbles her Chinese and Evelyn finishes introducing her as Joy's special friend, adding to Joy's frustration. The relationship between Evelyn and her daughter becomes the key factor in the story. All of this leads us to a great adventure where Evelyn and her family learn about each other. A fast-paced, quick-witted, moving, action-adventure comedy with some fun satire and serious things to say. See it on the big screen if you can do so safely. For WRT's Monday Movie Review, I'm Harry Richardson. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Your headline writer this evening was Emily Flick. Special thanks to feature contributors Harry Richardson, Teresa Yen, Brenda Conkle, and Dylan Brogan, and Nicholas Leet for technical production. Victor Calzoni engineered the show, Nate Weggiehout produced this newscast, and Sholly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Nick Dodge. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcast, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is the most free-form show on your radio dial, The Access Hour. Good night.